Welcome to the Grace Community Church Podcast. We are grace for everyone, community for everyone, church for everyone. We hope that as you listen to the message from this past Sunday, that your heart is encouraged and you find yourself being drawn to Jesus wherever you're tuning in from. We are so grateful that you've joined us and pray that you'll be blessed as you listen to this week's message. Hey friends, have you ever watched the show The Good Place? The one with Kristen Bell and Ted Danson, it ran from 2016 to 2020. I watched it a couple years ago on Netflix. It's clever. It's definitely an interesting concept, which I don't want to spoil for any of you if you haven't seen it and you might decide to check it out. But it has to deal with the afterlife and navigating what it means to be good. Like how do we end up in the good place versus the bad place? And depending on your perspective, what does each one of those things look like? So I, I like the, the, the way that they kind of play with that idea in that show. And I feel like the whole concept of heaven and hell um, and the pictures that we paint of what those places might look like have got some pretty interesting treatments in pop culture. I remember watching the movie What Dreams May Come with Robin Williams and just being astonished at the beauty uh, of that director's perception of what the afterlife might look like. Uh, books like, you know, Heaven is for Real and The Shack have been bestsellers because people are curious or people want to know what, what might be after this life. And I would venture to guess that most of us have our own ideas of what the afterlife might be like. And many of those ideas have likely been formed by pop culture as much as they have from scripture. Like, when I say the word heaven, what do you picture? White angels, halos, wings, harps. You're thinking of the Philly cheese commercial right now, at least from a few years ago. Or when I say hell, do you picture the devil with horns? Maybe with bat wings? If you do, you can likely thank Dante or John Milton for those sort of images. Because between the Inferno and Paradise Lost, those 14th and 17th century works of art, many of our visuals have come from them more than they've come from the Bible. And those pictures aren't always helpful. Like when you hear the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth, we likely think of fire and brimstone and darkness and, and demons. We think of hell. But as we'll see as we get into the scriptures today, that might not have been what Jesus was actually getting at. We're more than halfway through our series, The Difficult Words of Jesus. Those passages in the Bible that leave us scratching our heads or, or skipping to the next part. Because we're not entirely sure what to do with some of the things that Jesus asks of us. Like sell everything you have and give it to the poor, then come follow me. Anyone who doesn't hate their father and mother cannot be my disciple. Take up your cross and follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. If anybody wants to be great, they must be the slave of all. And this week we tackle another difficult phrase where Jesus speaks of weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's go to Matthew 25. Verse 14 to 30 reads like this. It says, Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. 
The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man who with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I'm not sure what immediately comes to your mind when you hear that passage, but if it's your first time hearing it, I hope it is at least a little bit disturbing because it's meant to be. It's meant to disturb. It's meant to disrupt. But I imagine if you're like me, you've heard or read that passage a couple of times. Maybe you've heard it a few times over and those words maybe have lost a bit of their edge. Or maybe you've already jumped ahead and are trying to determine which person in the story you are. Maybe like me, you've read it before and you've hoped against hope that you weren't like the last servant, afraid that you might not have done enough with what's been entrusted to you, that the master is going to toss you out into the darkness. We'll get to that in a second. But this concept of weeping and gnashing of teeth, I, I hope that that phrase disturbs us. I hope it makes us at least a little bit uncomfortable. But I hope that also, as we wrestle with the difficult words of Jesus, that we can hear the clear call of Jesus to follow him and walk in his kingdom, to find ourselves not on the outside looking in. I hope that this phrase will bring some encouragement as well as some challenge, this idea of weeping and gnashing of teeth. We'll come back to this parable in a moment, but perhaps it's helpful to realize that this phrase turns up seven times in the Gospels. And six of those times are in the Gospel of Matthew. Only once does this phrase appear in Luke. And since it's likely that Luke used Matthew's gospel in um, formulating some of his accounts, it seems like this phrase is unique to Matthew, which opens a bunch of questions for me. Like, why only in Matthew? Why, why didn't Mark or John use this phrase at all? Those are questions for another time. But this is what I love about scripture, is one question leads to another. You'll never fully plumb the depths of this text. There's always more to study, always more to uncover. But let's look at the couple of Matthew mentions. The first one in Matthew is similar actually to the one that Luke quotes. So we're gonna to touch on the Matthew one uh, for this morning. We'll have to be pretty brief with all of our looks at these, but 
We're going to go into Matthew chapter 8. Jesus has been approached by a Roman centurion with a request of healing for his paralyzed servant. And Jesus asks if he should come with him and, and go and heal him. And the centurion responds, he says, if you but say the word, I know he will be healed. And this is what follow, follows. Matthew 8, 10 to 12 says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Interesting phrasing after the promise of healing that many will come and take their place in the feast in the kingdom of heaven, but the subjects of the kingdom, those who were who are meant to be at the table, are going to be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's put a pin in that one. We'll flip over to Matthew 13. Jesus is, is explaining one of his parables, the, the parable of the wheat and tares or the wheat and the weeds. And he says, the field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So at the end of the age, the righteous and the evil ones will be separated. The evil will be thrown into the blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Is anyone else finding this a little disconcerting, this language a little disturbing? We press on. A few verses later, Jesus tells another par parable. He says, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on shore and they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but they threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There again, blazing furnace, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Maybe, maybe one more. In Matthew 24, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It'll be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this time the master finds the servant engaged in wickedness and cuts him to pieces, assigns him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think it's safe to say weeping and gnashing of teeth is a bad thing. It's not something that we want to find ourselves engaging in. It's not something we want to be even in the company of. Every time that there's a group or an individual tossed out, there's this weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think part of the point is we don't want to be one of those. But what is Jesus getting at? What is this weeping and gnashing of teeth? 
I think we have a pretty good understanding of what weeping is. Weeping is usually associated with sorrow or grief, you know, crying, sobbing, being distraught. I suppose you could weep for joy, but it's unlikely that that's what Jesus is talking about in this instance. But weeping is this, this sense of being overwhelmed with grief. But that phrase gnashing of teeth is a little less common in our everyday experience, not part of our regular vernacular. Often when people read these passage, passages, especially if they picture flames and pitchforks, it's about people being in anguish or in some sort of pain. Like when you cut your hand and you, you wince and you grind your teeth. But that's not how the Bible uses the phrase gnashing of teeth. The gnashing of teeth is an expression of intense anger. The phrase is used a few times in the Old Testament, in the book of Job. Um, Job says that God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent fastens on me his piercing eyes. It's almost like this, this picture of a, of a, of a lion or, or, or a, an animal of prey that is, that is tearing after Job. It's this fierceness, this anger. A couple of times in the Psalms it appears, in Psalm 37 it says, the wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. There's this anger, this vitriol that's, that's um, put towards the people of God or the righteous. At the stoning of Stephen in the New Testament, the, the first, first martyr of the church, Acts 7 says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, Stephen had been preaching, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. So gnashing teeth is, the picture I get is actually when my dog gets a little too aggressive with another dog, her growl comes out and she bares her teeth and she, she kind of like lets them know that like, you better get back. So what is Jesus getting at here when he says weeping and gnashing of teeth? Well, every time someone is sent away, it's because they've done something evil. They've been a hypocrite. They've decided to go their own path and not follow the master's wishes. And they're, they're mad. They end up on the outside looking in. And maybe they're a little bit shocked that they've been kicked out of the party. But the weeping and gnashing of teeth is this recognition that they're now on the outside, that they've now been set up up and against whatever the master had intended, outside of God's kingdom. Some of those who thought they were in, thought they were good enough, thought that they were doing what they were supposed to, like the one who buried his talent or the one who thought the master be away for a long time and decided, I can just do what I want. Get away with beating the servants and carousing in drunkenness. Well, when the jig is up, they aren't just filled with sorrow. They're mad. They're mad at the master, perhaps, but probably mad at themselves as well. They should have known better. They thought they were in, but now they find themselves on the outside. Well, outside of what is a really interesting question. Just what have they been sent away from? Well, according to these parables, it's the kingdom of God. And we sometimes conflate that phrase with the idea of heaven, of this some eternal destination. But when Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, he was talking in the present tense. He was talking about the here and now, talking about the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And when we read about people being left out of the kingdom, many of us will immediately jump to a picture of flames and pitchforks, a concept of hell more closely resembling Dante's Inferno than anything we find in the scriptures. In fact, what we see here is Jesus pointing out to people who should have known better, who should have been at work in the kingdom, who are now finding themselves outside of the blessing of the kingdom, outside of the relationship of walking with Jesus, walking with God. There's no mention of eternal destination in the parables or even in the explanations. It doesn't say that weeping and gnashing of teeth is something that goes on forever and ever. We often read more into these passages than we think. 
All these parables are being spoken to people who are in the family. It's the chosen ones of Israel. It's even to the disciples, those who should recognize Jesus as the Son and walk in his ways, who should realize what God is up to, those who've poured over the scriptures and studied every theory and figured out exactly where the Messiah would come from and what he would be like. And he's saying specifically to some of those leaders, some of those who find themselves within the Jewish tradition, be careful or you're going to find yourself outside. And you're going to be weeping and gnashing your teeth recognizing that you've missed it. He's saying it's possible to miss out on the kingdom even when it's all around us. There's a couple of things to note about these parables and teachings. The point of these stories isn't to illuminate some potential afterlife punishment. Rather, it's to inspire a change in this current moment, in the here and now, that our lives will be different because of what Jesus is teaching. The point wasn't to just avoid the bad place and hopefully end up in the good place. It was to understand how to live in a way that brought goodness into the world now. And it was shared with people who understood this imagery and challenge way better than we are, those of us who are far more removed from the original language. Jesus was being kind of subversive, maybe even a little controversial. He was speaking up out against the institution of the Jewish religion and, and calling them out for where they were missing the mark, telling them that if they thought that all the rule following and tithing and avoiding speaking the name of God for fearing of taking it in vain didn't amount to a place at the table if they failed to live in the light and love of the kingdom, if they failed to show mercy, if they, instead of caring for and feeding the servants, decided to beat them and mistreat them, if they didn't share the good news of God's forgiveness, that they were going to miss out on the banquet. Not everybody comes to the table. It's possible to miss the kingdom, even in the midst of it. These difficult words of Jesus aren't talking about who gets to heaven and who ends up in hell. They aren't even talking about how to tell who's really a Christian. Jesus is talking about being a part of the work of the kingdom or being outside of it. Being engaged in the relationship and what Jesus is at work doing in this world or being separated from it. But I bet many of us have equated these parables with a warning about hell. Because for many of us, the concept of hell has been used as a tool in evangelism. Like if you die today, do you know where you would spend eternity? But that's not what Jesus is trying to get at here. It's not what he's trying to accomplish when he's establishing his kingdom here on earth. It isn't just about some eternal destination where you make a choice to end up in one or the other. He was concerned with people experiencing justice and righteousness and holiness here and now. He was concerned with the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. He was concerned with people who were missing the point. Those people who thought they had it all together, who were arguing about their interpretations of the law and forgetting to care for the poor. People who thought that their righteousness was going to be enough while their neighbors went without food and clothing. He's talking about justice here and now. Let's get back to that first passage that we read together. It says, it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. He gave to one five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. Now, remember, this is a parable. We know right off the bat that it's a parable because it says, it will be kind of like, it will be as if. Like, here's an example or a way to sort of picture what the kingdom is all about. This man goes and he calls his servants, members of his household. He gives them their allotment. 
he entrusts them with his wealth. If you were to kind of bring into the idea of like what Jesus was entrusting the disciples, he was going to be handing them the keys to the kingdom. He was going to be handing them the mission to reach out to the entire world. And so to one he gives five, to one he gives two, and one gets a single bag, each according to his ability. Ability to do what? That's the beauty of the parables. There's so many layers, so many ways of reading. And we can't make a simple one-to-one comparison because God's not exactly like the landowner here. And each one of the servants, I think we're meant to see ourselves in each one of them at different points in our life. Sometimes we've, we've done well with the five. Sometimes we've only had two. Sometimes we've been the one who's maybe buried our talent or our bag of gold in the sand. Back to the story here. The master returns after being gone for a long while. And the first one that he entrusted the five bags to says, Master, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Well done, good and faithful servant. How many times have we heard this used as a phrase that we hope God says to us when we step into eternity? Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's happiness. I want you to be careful not to insert all your pictures of heaven there because the passage doesn't say that. The passage isn't about this um, one day stepping into eternity. The emphasis in this story is on the faithfulness of the servant having used the five bags that he was given to earn five more. He took what he had been given and he multiplied it. He worked. It doesn't say how or what he did, but it says that he set to work while the master was away and he gained five more. Well, the second servant comes in, having been given two bags. It says, the man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Notice the response is identical. There's no expectation that the man who had been given two had to turn that into 10. He took what he had and he was faithful with it. And I imagine in the first audience, they're listening to this and they're nodding their heads up to this point. They're like, yeah, of course. The man had five, he went and got five more. The man had two, he went and got two more. These sound like fair and honest dealings about what you would expect. But here comes the plot twist. The man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. This servant didn't understand his master, didn't know his master, didn't trust his master. He was afraid of him. He was afraid of messing up. He was afraid that he would somehow take that one and squander it or, or that at least at the bare minimum he could do was at least give back what had been entrusted to him. And he was afraid of incurring his wrath. The irony is by not doing something, by not investing, by not pouring out and gaining back another one, he did incur his master's wrath. He hid the gold in the ground and the master was not pleased. The master calls him a wicked and lazy servant. He says, you knew I harvest where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. He calls him wicked and lazy. The point of the parable is to uncover the hypocrisy of claiming to be in God's household, but not doing 
the work of the master, claiming to be part of God's home and not even doing the bare minimum. He says you're lazy, thinking only of yourself and your own skin. I knew that you were a harsh man. I knew that I was going to get in trouble, so I did nothing. And so the master calls him wicked. Being part of God's family means we engage with the kingdom. We do the things we see the master doing. We find the things that God's passionate about and we pour our hearts into those as well. We live in the way of Jesus. But this lazy servant has his one bag taken from him and he's thrown outside into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The point of this passage was to grab the hearts of those listeners, that they might invest with what's been entrusted to them, that they would avoid being tossed outside. So if you've read these passages before and you've been afraid that God's going to send you to hell for not using your talent wisely, take heart. That's not what Jesus was getting at here. But if you're someone who thinks that you have it all figured out and you aren't investing with what has been entrusted to you into the lives of others, then perhaps there's a warning and a challenge here for you. Maybe these passages will make you a little angry. When Jesus challenges our assumptions, our comfort, our selfishness, we were better off wrestling with those difficult words and beginning to invest in the kingdom than to have the door shut in our face because we refused to change. The weeping and gnashing of teeth comes because we refuse to recognize the call of Jesus in our lives, to give everything, to sacrifice everything, to walk in his kingdom, to invest all that we have, whether it's five, two, or one. Because no one wants to be on the outside looking in. No one wants to be left out. No one wants to be weeping and gnashing their teeth. Let's pray. Lord, we continue to wrestle with these difficult words of Jesus. And we continue to wrestle with what it means to live in your kingdom, to walk in your ways here in Winnipeg in 2023. And there's much that we still don't understand. But would you, would you help us to walk faithfully in those things that we do understand? Help us to have the humility to trust that you'll lead us and that we don't have to have all the answers, that we don't have to always be right, we don't have to decide who's in or who's out, but that we need to respond to the invitation to come to the table and then to share that table with others, to be the kind of people that listen to the prompting of your spirit and live the life of Jesus as faithfully as we can. Help us to be kingdom-minded people. Help us to invest our time in others, to love well, to care for the sick, to meet the needs around us. Help us to be like Jesus today, we pray. For it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we've officially launched our best summer yet. All of our info for the camps and adventure week, our kickoff barbecue, our close of the summer um, get together with uh, out at the lake is going to be all up on the website for you if you want to know more information about that. If you want to help by investing in making this the best summer yet, there's a, a spot on the website where you can give and help us bless a whole bunch of people this summer. We want to uh, do more ministry than we've done in past years and so we're excited to have our summer staff join us this week and we are looking forward to the best summer yet. So we pray that you would be a part of that, whether that's in person hanging out with us at the different events or whether it's investing to make sure that we can bless as many people as possible this summer. If we can pray for you or connect with you over the next little while, please reach out. We'd love to hear from you. And until we see you again, let this blessing be on you. May the beauty of God be reflected in your eyes. 
the love of God be reflected in your hands, the wisdom of God be reflected in your words, and the knowledge of God flow from your heart that all might see and seeing believe. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Peace to you.